What's your name? Tim Haggerty. Have you already done this podcast before? Yes, I'm returning. You didn't have anything else better to do? <laughs> you didn't have anybody else better to get? <laughs> All those things are true. Coming up on this edition of Life Around the Seams podcast, it's our first two-time guest. Back by popular demand, it's Tim Haggerty. And once again, we are going to totally nerd out by giving you some strange but true tales from baseball's unique past. And when I said... Back by popular demand, one person told us at the winter meetings that he really liked the podcast, and that's why he is back. This is Life Around the Seams. Former Major League pitcher Jim Bouton once wrote, You spend a good piece of your life gripping a baseball... And in the end, it turns out, it was the other way around all the time. Welcome to Life Around the Seams, a podcast about baseball people who have interesting stories from between the lines, and sometimes even more interesting stories outside the lines. Here's your host, Josh Sushan. Do you remember the story of the one guy from the baseball winter meetings who really enjoyed our podcast? No, that was real. Somebody said yeah, that. Yeah, you don't remember this? Was I there? Yes, you were there. No. Shane Phillips. Shout out to Shane Phillips, formerly the oh. PR guy at Colorado Springs, now part of the Amarillo Sod Poodles. Nice he of said, him. He said that he listened, he enjoyed it, and he said that yeah, you guys have to do it again. All right, so well, shout out to late. Shane Phillips. This is why we're doing 2.0. <laughs> and also I had nobody else to interview, and it's been a long time since I've done one. <laughs> well, i got to say, I've listened to a few of yours, and I really enjoy it. Um, in fact, last summer, you interviewed Pat Vendetti, who I thought was one of your best, the ambidextrous pitcher. And you had met him about five days before I was to see him pitch. And I listened to that interview, and I thought, okay, well, I don't have to do any homework on this guy. I already know his whole <laughs> background now, and I just check off his name. Let's give the full introduction to Tim Haggerty. He is the play-by-play radio announcer for the El Paso Chihuahuas. He is the author of a book about minor league baseball team names. He has written strange minor league stories for the Sporting News, also for Hardball Times. What is the uh, total number of years that you have been broadcasting baseball now? This is my 16th year. And how many of those as a Padres affiliate? Uh, 14. 14 yeah. years. In what cities? Mobile, Alabama, when the Padres double-A team was there for two years, and then the triple-A club in Portland, Oregon, that is, Tucson, and now El Paso. All right, so the first time that we got together, we just told uh, unique stories. We learned about the left fielder who was chasing a foul ball and got hit by a train and died. <laughs> shouldn't still, laugh at that. Still, still the best one ever. We learned about... Why Fred Chicken Stanley was trying to get tagged out on purpose and why the Detroit Tigers did not want to tag him out. It's because Ricky Henderson was involved. We'll send a link so the people can hear the stories from uh, round one. But, again, this is round two, and so the idea is we're just going to come up with some interesting stories that, that we find are fascinating that we hope that the audience will find fascinating. And since you're the guest, you get to go first. You can start wherever you want. First off, we chuckled at uh, that guy that died that got hit by a train when he was chasing the foul ball. We should note to the listeners, it took place in 1903. We wouldn't be laughing if it occurred within the last 100 years. How many years before people, when was it too soon? (laughs) 
I don't know. Uh, 2003, maybe give it a nice century. I was going to give it a year. By 1904, <laughs> I would have been laughing about it. All right. Well, uh, I'll go first for this edition. Okay. So, if you go to baseballreference.com, you'll see there are 19,000 major league players, and with the click of your mouse, you can find a player's birth date, hometown, draft round, piles of their statistics. But, out of those 19,000, there are still 39 players in Major League history that we don't know their first name. And you might say, well, how is this possible? Obviously, this was in baseball's early beginnings. And for example, 1890, the Philadelphia Athletics are running out of money, and the manager had to sell the contracts of some of his best players. The season's winding down. It's the final day of the season, and he needs some bodies. He signs four local players where their road game was taking place, named McBride, Stafford, Sterling, and Swigert. These names appear in the box score. There's very little media coverage of this final game of the season. And to this day, we don't conclusively know who these players are. And the story, the, one, the, the aspect of this I wanted to share with you that I think is so cool is that the Sabre Biographical Research Committee, it's a group of people that are essentially devoted to finding out who these people are because they want to have a complete, thorough baseball encyclopedia. They want to find out who these 39 players are, and sometimes they do. Newspaper archives, census data, ancestry websites. The great thing is more and more info of the past is getting added to the web. So randomly here in May of 2019, some city might put its census data online and help identify... One of those four players in 1890. 1890. Okay, so that's still before what we consider the modern era of baseball, which began in 1900. Yeah, and if you use BaseballReference.com, these people are included on that list of 19,000. And historians debate on that. There's things like the National Association or the Union Association, whether or not they were a major league. But my understanding is the encyclopedias, Baseball Reference, do count these people as major league players. How many was there, again, that they're still under? 39. Out of the 39, how many of them, from your knowledge, are similar to those four where they just got signed the final day of the season? Is there, is there someone who appeared in, say, 23 games over parts of three years or something? Yeah, there was one guy in Baltimore, I'm trying to remember his name, that actually got 11 at-bats um, that I think is the most experienced player that we don't know their first name. And what really harms the research is that some of the names are common. Um, if somebody's playing in Boston in the late 1800s, a very heavily Irish-American population, and the guy's name is McDonald, I mean, there's just so many candidates that it could be. There's a player listed on baseball reference as Gavern, and the reason is um, one newspaper box score said this player was Gavern. The other newspaper said McGovern. So there's sort of conflicting theories on some of these. Uh, There's a great baseball researcher in Michigan, Peter Morris, who's written a handful of books on baseball's history, and um, he's he's in the same mold as John Thorne, just knows so much about the beginnings of baseball. And what's great about Morris is that he will not go with it until he's completely sure. Um, And he's reached a status where, as this biographical research committee has, that baseball reference, the encyclopedias, essentially trust them. If this is our guy... We're going with it. So a lot of these guys, they're strong theories, but you just need that conclusive evidence. No, the other thing that occurs to me, too, is back then, most of the stats, most of the record-keeping were done by pencil, not even by pen. And so 
what if someone's penmanship is off, you know, or just the fact that it's an old document and wait, they're writing in cursive most of the time. Yep. Is that is that a U? Is that a V? Is that an R? And so that can lead to a discrepancy in what someone's name is, not to mention if they just got signed. That's a great point. From what I've read, that exactly is the reason for some of these is a misspelling. Um, you know, there's, there's some ways where, okay, is that second letter an O or a C, which is a big difference, whether it's an MC last name or maybe it isn't a, a last name that has two capital letters on it. So a lot of it is the paperwork side of it. All right. That's not as strong of a start as somebody dying, but it's a really interesting start. I still like it. I wanted to begin on a more positive note this time. Okay. Well, I'm going to begin on a note of um, the phrase, man, that came from out of left field. Heard that phrase before, right? I have. And have you ever wondered the origins of the phrase? Well, wow, that really came out of left field. I heard a theory once about a, an asylum of some kind near a ballpark. Yes. Okay. So apparently if you go on a tour of Wrigley Field, you might hear a story about how there used to be a mental hospital behind the fence in left field, and sometimes fans and players would hear the patients screaming, and that that's where the phrase way out in left field came from. But that story is not true. Oh. Some people also think that's where the Chicago Cubs, the, uh, the, the bleacher bums, kind of got their start. But that's not true. It's close to being true, but it's not true. Now, you also might hear that there is a, uh, the other ballpark that the Cubs played at before they were at Wrigley Field, which was actually Wiegman Park before it became Wrigley Field, was called the West Side Grounds. And that's where the Cubs played from 1893 to 1915. And so part of the legend is that there was a hospital simply named the Neuropsychiatric Institute that was located not beyond the fence and left at Wrigley Field, but at the old West Side grounds. So then the story starts to take on a little bit more possibilities that this thing is true. The problem is that the Neuropsychiatric Institute did not get founded until the Great Depression, 1937. Construction did not begin until 1939. By then, the Cubs were not only playing at Wrigley Field, but it was called Wrigley Field. And so it sounds like it might work because there was this neuropsychiatric institute down the field from the old West Side grounds, but the timeline doesn't quite add up for that version either. However, there is a third possibility from Chicago, and that is that there was simply a Cook County Hospital, the original Cook County Hospital. Now, this was immediately north of the West Side Grounds, and it was in operation during the time that the Cubs played there. In fact, the grandstand from home plate to left field ran along Polk Street, and it was set a little bit back from the road, meaning that there was like some houses in between the hospital and the baseball field, and that is where indeed the hospital was. So it is possible that the phrase, way out in left field, did originate from some patients from the hospital. Certainly in the late 1800s was a period of, uh, it was a grim time. Not like people had a lot of money. There was overpopulation issues in Chicago. There was political corruption that was running rampant. And so it could be that those patients were hollering and that's where the phrase came. As you're saying that, it's yet another reminder of how so many stories that people just say, not intentionally trying to mislead, but aren't true. It just gets passed on and passed on. I remember a couple of years ago um, doing an article about where was Babe Ruth's longest home run because there's six or seven different towns or cities that have a sign 
that say site of Babe Ruth's longest home run. I mean, there can only be one, right? Um, and the same thing, I found uh, baseball's first night game. handful of different cities claim that in some way. Um, the longest home run in baseball history is debated as well. So it's, it's good digging by you because it, it makes me wonder about things outside of baseball that maybe I only know a little bit about. Are those made up also? Well, there's a number of different websites that I researched this way out in left field. And I want to give a shout-out to Bleed Cubby Blue, the blog, for providing a lot of the more... They kind of knocked down a lot of the theories that were out there. But there is... One of my favorite expressions is Occam's Razor, right? And that is that the most logical answer to something is the simplest. And there is a professor, a linguistics historian, Professor Marcus Callies, C-A-L-L-I-E-S, hopefully I'm pronouncing his last name correct, and he has a theory on where the phrase actually originated and is a much more simple phrase. Let's say you're at second base and there's a base hit to left field. You're rounding third and you're scoring, trying to score. Or you're at third, fly ball to left. You're tagging up. You run home. Your back is to the left fielder. You think you're going to be safe. And then all of a sudden the throw arrives at home plate. You're tagged out and you think, wow, that throw came from out of left field. Whereas if the right fielder has the ball, the runner can see him or her. And yeah. See the ball. And so yeah. it, you know, it's not coming from behind right. you. So perhaps that's where the phrase, well, that came from left field because it simply literally came from left field. What a great theory. Yeah. So if you ever go on a tour at Wrigley Field and you hear this thing about a mental institute that used to be outside the ballpark, I'm sure the tour guide is not trying to be inaccurate. The tour guide probably heard that from somebody or read it from somewhere. The story is possibly partway true, but not, it's definitely not true about Wrigley Field. But it is possibly somewhat true about the former home of the Chicago Cubs, which was the West Side Grounds. Wow. Yeah, I was one of those people that thought it related to the institution in left field. You know, back in the early 1900s, there was a minor league team in Missouri, Nevada, Missouri, spelled the same way as Nevada, but pronounced Nevada. And their name was the Nevada Lunatics, and that's why. There was uh, a mental institution there, as they described it at the time, an insane asylum. Um, God, that's uncomfortable to think of. That, that The players that, weren't from the... Insane no, asylum. it's just that that's what that town was known for, and okay. that was the name of the team. And uh, Just like the Springfield Isotopes. Right. You're exactly. known for what the city is most famous. And now, of course, that's uncomfortable to think that that was an actual team name, but in the early 1900s, that was a real team name. Okay. Interesting. All right, what do you got next? A little bit more recently, the first round of the 1990 draft, the Cardinals picked Aaron Holbert from a high school in California. He plays in their organization for six years and makes his Major League debut in April of 1996. Plays one game. His second Major League game took place in 2005. Nine years, four months in between his first and second Major League games. Um, and speaking of the modern era, from 1900 to now, that is believed to be the Major League record, according to Elias Sports Bureau, for most time in between your first and second major league game well if you want a triple-a player to root for there's a modern example of this in 2008 Sean Kazmar played 19 games for the San Diego Padres and is still playing having not been to the majors for a second stint 
He has played in 22 games in 2019 as we tape this for the Gwinnett Stripers, the Braves AAA team. And both Kazmar and Holbert, these are not players that went over to Asia for a decade and made a bunch of money and came back. These guys have been grinding minor league free agent year after year. You know, one year I'm in Tacoma, the next year I'm in Nashville, just bouncing around. Did either one of them um, switch positions? Yes, Kazmar was a middle infielder with the Padres. I saw in Brave Spring training they had him at first base, so maybe he's gotten a little bigger and stronger. But they didn't become um, a pitcher correct, or anything no. like that. Okay. No, no drastic conversion there. So uh, what a story that would be if the Braves could use this guy, and he goes up for the first time in the big leagues in 2008, and then again in 2019. What an interesting wow. back of the baseball card that would look like. Seriously, it almost makes it look like it's a typo. Oh, no, right. no, 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 that wasn't really San Diego. <laughs> that was... It's the same guy, right? Wow. That, that, that shows a lot of perseverance to keep playing. Yeah. That is a lot of 3 a.m. wake-up calls in the PCL. No doubt. What's, this, what's the guy who's currently... Um, who could do this again? Sean Kazmar. Sean Kazmar. So we need to root for Sean Kazmar. I am. Uh, the, the the first guy, the guy who was drafted by the Cardinals, what was his name again? Aaron Holbert, who's now a minor league manager for the Tampa Tarpons. In the okay, what else league. do we know about him? So, Holbert, um, first-round pick out of high school. Obviously, with that, came a big prospect in the lower levels. Took six years to make it to the majors, but still, you know, was in his early to mid-20s when he did. Gets into one game with the Cardinals. And nine years worth of bus rides, 3 a.m. wake-up calls, as you described and then gets back with the Reds in 2005. He played for a handful of organizations in between. I can tell you're uh, pulling up his info here. But well, I just pulled up his Wikipedia, and apparently he was in the documentary Cobb Field, The Day at the Ballpark, which was shot okay. during his tenure with Billings, the Billings Mustangs. Yeah. yeah, he's been a scout with the Yankees. Aaron Holbert from Jordan High School in Long Beach. There's a lot of really talented guys that come from Long Beach. Wow, that is something. Just when you look at, like, you pull up his baseball reference, 1996, one game, and then there's a gray block until 2005. It and makes me wonder, for so many players, their most emotional moment is their Major League debut. I wonder for him if getting back after a decade in between was actually a highlight of his career. I, I wouldn't be surprised if it was. I know that I've talked with you know a handful of guys, especially those who have come back from Tommy John surgery. I remember the first time that Jason Schmidt came back, and I think he had missed like almost like two years or something like that. He finally came back, and I remember talking to him after the game, and he said, yeah, I felt like it was my Major League debut all over again. Wow. I, I want to say that Rick Ankiel has said similar things after his bout with extreme wildness as a pitcher, reinvents himself as an outfielder, gets called back up to the major leagues with the Cardinals. That wasn't the amount of time that uh, Aaron Holbert had in between. I, I would think that the second time means even more, but it would be more memorable. But, wow, that is something. All right. For my second story, I'm going to stick back with uh, baseball back before the rules were the same as what they are now because we take for granted rules, right? Four balls is a walk. Three strikes is a strikeout. Three outs is the end of an inning, right? And we take for granted that if you hit the ball over the fence, it's a home run, right? It's an automatic home run. Well, the rules were not always in every league that if you hit the ball over the fence, it was an automatic home run. Hmm. So that takes us to the story of Alonzo Knight, better known as Lon. Lon Knight. He was playing a game at Riverside Park in Albany, New York. And this would have been in the uh, 1870s. And there was a batter at the plate by the name of Lip Pike. L-I-P, Lip, 
and his last name is Pike. Lip Pike was actually a, uh, a very famous guy. We're going to have a couple of postscripts to the story. Lip Pike was one of the earliest sluggers in baseball history. He was like Babe Ruth before yeah. there was Babe Ruth. He led the league in home runs one year with four. <laughs> okay, so Lip Pike hits a ball. It sails over the fence, and it lands in a nearby river. Not necessarily an automatic home run because Lon Knight <laughs> decided he was a very determined ball player. He got into a boat and he paddled out into the river, still chasing the ball. He refused to give up on the play. He got into a boat and he paddled out onto the river. Eventually, he gave up. He was angry, but he finally gave up and reluctantly allowed Lip Pike to have his moment for a home run. That's so lawn. Such a lawn move. Um, That is so noticeable. And what I've read about baseball's beginnings, even in leagues now considered to be major leagues was the playing field conditions where in certain cities they would just casually mention in these newspaper articles uh, they had to deal with the hill in right center field. Now I know Isotopes Park has a hill but it's sort of contained. This was more like you know you're playing in an environment where a dog might run on the field or just nothing like we picture now. I had never heard that boat story. That that is a classic. Maybe you should have led with that one. That that is. Uh, Maybe I should have led with that. Yeah. Maybe from the powers of editing, we will lead with this one. <laughs> so, if you ever happen to go to the Laurel Hill Cemetery in Philadelphia, uh, shout out to them. They actually have an entry. Uh, they have a blog. The Laurel Hill Cemetery does, in which this um, specific entry was found. Um, he unfortunately he is in a uh, unmarked grave, but it is section H, lot sixty three sixty four. Harry Callis was also buried at the cemetery, so if you like uh, paying your respects to outfielders who go into a boat to try to retrieve a home run that was hit into a river, um, go pay your respects to Lawn at Night at the uh, Laurel Hill Cemetery. Okay, now the postscript to this story involves the guy who hit the ball, Lip Pike. He actually ended up throwing out the first pitch in the first game played in the new National League. After his playing career, he became a manager. He became an umpire as well. Mentioned earlier, one of the earliest sluggers in baseball history. He was also one of the fastest players in the league. He would occasionally race any challenger for a cash prize. And being the 1800s, you can't just race other humans. You have to race a horse. On August 16, 1873, Lip Pike raced a horse named Clarence. It was a 100-yard sprint. It took place at Newington Park in Baltimore. You want to guess who the winner was of this race? The horse or Lip? Pike. Lip. Pike was the winner. (laughs) He won by four yards. He had a time of 10 seconds flat. He earned $250, which in current dollars is about $6,400 for beating a horse. You know, there's actually a modern version of that. There was a horse named Zippy Chippy back in the, I think, late 1990s that got national attention because it never won a race. This horse was like 0 and 100. Like the uh, Washington Generals of of horses. (laughs) Exactly. And the Rochester Red Wings invited the horse out for a promotion, and they picked their fastest player, and this guy raced a horse on the field before the game. And I've seen the YouTube video. I'm trying to think of uh, who won. I can't recall off the top of my head, but um, what a great concept. You know, if there's some minor league baseball general managers out there, they're scratching their head right now. Finding their local racehorse. I'd pay to see a ticket, watch a ball game, and watch a, a base stealer race a horse. Who's the guy in Atlanta? The Flash? Oh, yeah. 
the can freeze. we have the yeah. the freeze? Can we have the freeze race against <laughs> race the, horse? the horse? That'd be awesome. What a great idea! Yeah, contact the Braves about that. There's got to be some racetracks there. Has to be, for sure. Yeah. Maybe between games of a doubleheader, excitement. Yeah, absolutely. All right, that was a good one. So should I move on now? Yeah, go ahead. What do you got next? All right, Steamboat Johnson, the entertainingly named longtime minor league umpire, so much so that this guy umpired more minor league games than anyone in history. He was a minor league umpire from 1911 to 1946, oftentimes working games alone. And <laughs> multiple newspaper articles have written this story and say it's legit. So Steamboat in 1912 is umpiring a Western League game Denver at St. Joseph in Missouri. And a couple of cowboys who had money on the game show up to the game carrying their pistols. Score is tied in the bottom of the ninth inning. The home team has loaded the bases. And there's money at stake here. And the batter hits a tall fly ball to center field. And this concerns the gamblers who have pistols. And Steamboat says that the Cowboys pulled out their pistols, aimed at the fly ball, and shot the baseball into bits. <laughs> so, the Nashville, Tennessean newspaper, upon hearing this story years later and featuring Steamboat, says to the umpire, okay, so when a live ball is shot, <laughs> what's the, what ruling? Is the ruling? Right? <laughs> Steamboat says, quote, it was a home run because the ball had disappeared from my view, having been shot into small pieces by the accurate aim of the Cowboys. So it was a walk-off home run. It was a shot-off home run. Shot-off home run. Shot-off home run. New phrase. <laughs> and I was reading this just, I mean, laughing out loud to myself, but if you do newspapers.com research on this, this appears in many legitimate newspapers. Uh, Steamboat Johnson actually wrote a memoir about... His time as a minor league umpire in the early 1900s, it's mentioned in there. Um, and it's just a, a reminder of what a different time it was, both in baseball and in the United States. I mean, some of these descriptions, Steamboat is getting mobbed by fans after games. He's trying to physically run to the streetcar or the train to get to the next city after this unruly mob is chasing him. Uh, it wasn't the only one that involved a bullet. He has a story that one day in Atlanta... Uh, this angry mob breaks out after he blew an extra inning call, and they're furious at him, but he somehow made his way into the umpire's dressing room when a bullet came whizzing into his shower. And Steamboat says in his book, I would have been shot, but I was washing my feet. <laughs> um, wow. Well, now we have metal detectors outside of ballparks. Yes. It is safe. No one brings a gun. No. At least that we're, we are aware into a game. And we're also not aware of anybody in the stands Scambling on the games. <laughs> as far <But>. as we're <laughs> aware. Wow. Well, the other thing is, is um, as scary as that story is, like the aim. The aim is really good of those guys. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's not hard. It's not easy to hit a baseball with it's a gun. a moving ball. Yes. So they were a very good shot. Yes. And they elected to use their very good marksmanship on the baseball and not on anybody else. So nobody died in this story. No. No, I don't have uh, any death in today's, <laughs> um, you know, some of the people featured have passed, but not in the story. <laughs> okay. Do you agree with that ruling? 
that it should be a home run, or is that just a ubiquitous ground rule double? Well, I want to know no, how, how about far this, it was hit. It, yeah. Right? The description was a tall fly ball to center field. I'm not sure if I do agree with the ruling because uh, think about the ruling on fan interference. If an outfielder is camped under a ball, about to catch it, and a fan leans over, they consider that a fly out. Right. So if Steamboat felt that this ball was going to be caught and then it gets shot into bits, I'm not sure it should be a home run. That Yeah, that's the, what year is this? 19, uh, 1912. That's the 1912 version of Jeffrey Mayer, except instead of with a glove reaching over, it's it's a gun from the stand shooting the ball down. Right. I think it should be an out. I, wanna, I do too. I want to know how close the outfielder was to the fence. I want to know how many outs there were. Like, was this going to be the third out? Are we going to extra innings as a result of this? Was there a curfew in order to catch the train after this game? Because as much of a hero as Riverboat is, as long as he umpired, I think he got the call wrong. I'm calling. I'm calling grievance. I agree. I would yeah. be protesting we if should. I'm the manager of this team. We should, you know, Th- that should be if the third out. We're going extras. Free baseball. St. Joseph drummers fans are still upset about this. <laughs> That's why they lost the team. They could never get over it. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, I think Steamboat messed it up. Yeah. All right. I have a story that is inspired by a question that Isotopes General Manager John Traub asked me. Hmm. Not before a 6.35 game, when we had plenty of time to research this, but before an 11.05 a.m. game. (laughs) (laughs) Not that either one of us had anything else more pressing to do, but he asked me the question, and then, of course, it sent us on a a wild goose chase to find out the answer to said question. And it's a pretty simple question. Why is the shape of home plate the shape that it is? What a great question. Wow. Wow. You ever hear a question and you're just thinking, like, I mean, I've literally seen thousands of games and I've never even thought that. Right? You have my interest. John Traub had my interest about <laughs> 9 o'clock in the morning when there was a game two hours later that I had not started to prep for. Well, on one hand, if you look at the plate, especially if you're looking at it from the view of the pitcher, it kind of looks like a house, right? Doesn't it kind of look like a home? Yeah. I think that's more of a coincidence. Because according to the website, shout out to the website, Today I Found Out. Well, Today I Found Out. Now, prior to 1899, as we have established, the rules, eh, I don't even know if we can call them rules, right? Ball kills over the fence, the guy jumps into a boat, tries to go get it in the river. So the rules were very loose. Any object round in nature could serve as home base, as it was called back then. The circular object could be used out of marble, out of stone, out of glass, yes. <laughs> Sometimes home base was made out of glass or any other materials. At times, even a dish was used as home base, which is what some people think is why the expression, like, if oh. you're the catcher, you're behind the dish, because it was literally a dish. What you ate dinner on was used as home base. And do you think players are still stomping on it upon scoring runs? Perhaps. Yeah. This is also why there was not a whole lot of sliding into home base at the time, because sometimes it was glass. Sometimes it was stone or marble. It was not the rubber home plate that we know of today. Well, around 1900, the rule regarding home plate's shape started to change, and there was requirements. Originally, the length was 12 by 12. Now it is 16 by 16. And they wanted it to basically take on the same 
shape as the other bases, as first base, second base, as third base. But also, it was pointed in a way so that one corner was pointed toward the pitcher and the other corner was pointed toward the catcher. So it's sort of like a straight line. This is the line that goes from the catcher to the pitcher to second base hmm. because it was a square still back then. And this is when it started to be highly recommended that you use um, rubber instead of stone or marble with sharp edges. And there was a, a very famous man by the name of Robert Keating. Robert Keating is in the Hall of Fame for all of the contributions that he made to baseball. And Robert Keating introduced the pentagon shape that we now use. Now, when you think about the, the back corners where they go at an angle, well, those were lined up specifically so that you knew this is where the baseline is. So that the edges mm-hmm. that come to the point, mm-hmm. okay, those lines, that's what the grounds crew uses in order to measure out, okay, right. this is the first baseline, this is the third baseline. And so that was done uh, very specifically. And also, the shape of it made it easier for the home plate umpire to judge the strike zone. And so the consistency of calling strikes became a whole lot better as a result of this. So from last night's dinner plate (laughs) to this pentagon shape that is rubber and with these directions helping you along the first and third base lines is why home plate is the shape that it is. But I'm also still wondering why it is called home plate instead of home base. Because occasionally you'll hear somebody say, oh yeah, he touched home base. And you go, ah, that person doesn't know baseball. You know, clearly this person needs to learn about baseball. It's not home base, it's home plate. Well, originally it was now home we know. base. Yeah. And so home plate, that phrase most likely goes back to, and again, we're using most likely because we're never quite sure from something from the 1880s, 1870s. But in all likelihood, home plate is because it was literally a plate that was used when baseball was first beginning. Think about Keating's legacy. So what did you do? Uh, I shaped home plate, all of them, millions of them. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Postscript is that um, there is a gentleman by the name of Henry Chadwick. Also in the Hall of Fame. Yes, also in the Hall of Fame. And Henry Chadwick developed ERA, earned run average. Originally, the purpose of the ERA was not to evaluate a pitcher's worth. Now we look at it and we say this pitcher has a 2.78 ERA. Or if there is an error that is made in the field, it will ensure that his ERA is not too much higher. Or maybe his manager, his pitching coach, will say that hit should have been an error because that's going to lead to unearned runs. It's going to save his ERA. But originally, the whole purpose of ERA was not to evaluate a pitcher's worth. It was to differentiate runs caused by batting skill and those caused by lack of fielding skill. Because back then, when when the game first began... They weren't throwing it as hard as they could. They weren't throwing curveballs, change-ups. You pretty much just lob the ball down the middle of the plate, and you just kind of put the ball in play. And so this was this is why ERA was developed, yet we have stuck with ERA all these years hmm. despite this. Also, Henry Chadwick is the person who decided to use K when you're keeping score to indicate a strikeout. And I know that I remember there was a night on Dodger Talk Ken Levine and I were on the air, and someone said, why is strikeout K? I mean, BB is based on balls. H is hit. IP is innings pitched. 2B is double. HR is home run. RBI is run batted in. Why is K strikeout? And Ken and I spent a lot of time coming up with different theories. We didn't know. I thought maybe just because, well, there's three lines that you make to form a K, which would indicate strikeout. Well, the story is... 
the last letter in the word struck is K. And Henry Chadwick just thought that the letter K was easier to remember in connection with the word strikeout than S or SO. And so that's why K is utilized for a strikeout because of the K that is the last letter in the word struck. Great stuff. And when you were talking about that, how the pitcher for a lot of the times in the early game was not trying to deceive. It was considered unethical to do. Um, some of the first curveballs were controversial. This guy's throwing a curveball with intent to deceive. And when you read about baseball in that era, um, sort of as you were describing 1870s and the, the decades to follow, I get the feeling that it wasn't pitcher versus batter the way that some will criticize Major League Baseball in 2019 about where there are a lot of walks, a lot of strikeouts, and a lot of home runs. But it was more of a team of batters and runners versus a team of fielders. There's more movement. And, you know, when I think about Chadwick and the first person to keep score, um, such an influential sports writer, you know, that's what I, I think about that when... For whatever reason, this year when I watch baseball, I don't notice that as much. It, it seems to be a better game than last year, a more entertaining game. But I was thinking about that last year when this really was a topic throughout the summer. Think about that when Major League Baseball is looking into rule changes and whatnot. Make it a team of fielders versus a team of runners and batters. Yeah, so the other thing that... Um I mean, you think about even just like the pitcher's mound, there for a while when people first started to throw curveballs, they would get a running head start in order to deliver the ball. And so that's why the rubber exists, is because it's like, no, you have to have a foot on this because this running head start that pitchers were starting to get, that's not allowed. That's not very gentlemanly. We need a designated spot where you have to begin. And so the evolution of how it became 60 feet, 6 inches, it evolved over time before we got there. But that's even why there was, that's why there was a mound. That's why there's a rubber. Um, the other thing about Chadwick is that he did not like walks. And because, I mean, baseball is basically adopted from cricket. There's no walks in cricket. And Henry Chadwick did not feel like walks had anything to do with offensive skill. And so he removed walks entirely from baseball statistics. He felt that walks were more like an error by the pitcher than it was any type of skill by the batter. So it took... 70-something years before Earl Weaver started pontificating about walks and three-run home runs and defense, and then Moneyball and Billy Bean about walks and on-base percentage and the Greek god of walks, to now, of course, people around baseball look at on-base percentage much higher than they do batting average, but there for the longest time, walks weren't even really like considered a skill, so they weren't even tracked. I think that was an evolution in a lot of our brains. I remember as a kid, walks, you would attribute it to the pitcher's lack of accuracy, whereas less of a skill for the batter and now these phrases he grinds out at bats he's selective it's a, a badge of honor when you take a close pitch and it goes for a ball um unless you strike out right <laughs> <laughs> so what are you doing get the bat off your shoulder <laughs> yeah it's funny just a quick aside there when you mentioned the curveball in the mounds have you ever heard of fred goldsmith the name sounds familiar um so candy cummings is attributed as the inventor of the curveball he was slinging seashells by the seashore and cause them to bend um and cummings is in the hall of fame even though he didn't have a very long major league career as a pitcher he's in there as more of a pioneer for inventing the curveball but there was this pitcher fred goldsmith who claims on a street he set up two poles and he could get the ball to swerve in between them and goldsmith claimed that he in fact was throwing the first curveball 
and went to his deathbed angry about this, that Cummings was getting so much credit. Really? And there was an article recently on uh, SB Nation within the last year about Goldsmith. And um, I'm on the Facebook group of uh, Sabre's 19th Century Committee looking at sort of a lot of things that you're talking about, uh, Chadwick and the evolution of the early game. So when that article was posted on there, I was curious what the experts thought. And there's a, a Facebook message on there from John Thorne, Major League Baseball's official historian who knows as much about this, if not more, as anybody alive. And Thorne wrote, Fred Goldsmith was delusional. <laughs> <laughs> so apparently, <laughs> Goldsmith doesn't have the say that Cummings does when it comes to who invented the curve. Okay. He was delusional. All right. That's what I love about the, the early game, the things that had to be invented. Um, there's a guy, something dicky, who is given credit for inventing the bunt. He invented bunting. <laughs> Did he just... He, <laughs> he just didn't I don't swing know. hard? <laughs> I don't know if he thought, hey, I'm going to separate my hands and actually intentionally hit it softly. I guess at the time it would be an unusual concept. For sure. I mean, there's a lot of concepts that are unusual, like using a glove right. or having your own glove, not sharing it with the other left fielder. Right. The other sports just, I know they, they've all evolved, but they don't have this depth of those examples. Yeah. Yeah. All right, what else you got for us? All right, that's right. It's my turn. I have uh, two more good ones. So let's go, let's stay in the 1800s. There was a major league pitcher named Abner Powell in the early 1880s, who also made it to the majors as a position player. When he left playing, he became the owner, president, and manager of the New Orleans Pelicans, then a minor league baseball team. So, as it does now in the Pacific Coast League, New Orleans having a lot of trouble with rain. Day after day, right there on the Gulf of Mexico, they're getting pounded every afternoon by showers. You've been there, I've been there. It, it continues to happen to this day. Uh, oftentimes, more total rainfall in New Orleans than any place in the whole country. And Powell is losing money because these games repeatedly are getting canceled. So one day, he takes a walk that ends up being a fateful walk to a dock down there on the New Orleans waterfront. And he sees these people working on the dock covering the big bales of cotton with this massive canvas. And the owner says, I do that because otherwise I'd lose money if my cotton crop got ruined. And Powell says, do you think they could make one big enough to cover a baseball diamond? And the guy said, I don't know. So Powell contacted this manufacturer, had it shipped to the ballpark in New Orleans, explained to his ground screw guys what they were going to do, and they looked at him like he was crazy. But that day, draped across this canvas tarp, across the infield, and despite the afternoon rain, they still played the game. That year, 1887, the Cincinnati Reds played an exhibition in New Orleans, loved the idea, got one of their own. And according to many articles at the time, uh, Sabre did a biography on Abner Powell. It discusses this at length, that it was the Reds taking the idea from New Orleans to Cincinnati that spread the tarp idea throughout professional baseball. Because Cincinnati was the place for the longest time. Opening day was at Cincinnati. It's one of the birthplaces of the sport, one of. And 
If so, if the Reds had not gone to New Orleans, it might have been years before the rest of the country had discovered this. It could have been the, the aforementioned Peter Morris, who did uh, a great book about how many things in baseball were invented. He found that uh, Sportsman's Park in St. Louis had small versions where they would cover the bases around this time. But from what I've read, Powell was the first guy that says, I want to cover the whole field. Including the outfield, grass, or was it no, just the dirt? No, just the infield dirt, yeah. Or skin, as groundskeepers call it. Right. Got to protect right. the skin. Skin. Um, and now, so yeah, very influential. And now everyone has a tarp. That's right. Every major league team. Um, and it, it was something that saved so much money because now these games were getting played. And Powell was a really innovative guy. Um, he's given credit for inventing Ladies' Day. Okay. Um, at the time, that was a controversial concept because the people that would come to ball games were um, drinking, cursing, gambling. You know, I got the feeling that a minor league baseball game in the 1880s was sort of like that slimy dive bar. It might, might be not the place you want to hang out in. Well, Whereas, they brought guns, as we have they established. Brought, right. They brought guns, brought guns to the game. Right. But Powell not only felt like I'm excluding half of the population by the fact that women aren't at these games, but he also felt the presence of the ladies would clean up everybody else, would maybe make more families come out to the ballpark. Um, he also is given credit for inventing ticket stubs. Back then, again, these rainy conditions, people were given like a hard, impermanent ticket where you would get it, but then upon leaving the ballpark, you would drop the ticket off, and they'd use them the next day. Okay. And Powell was having issues that uh, politicians and well-known people in the community were sort of talking their way in, and there were kids that were slipping through the holes in the fence and climbing the fence. So then the game gets rained out, and there's more people in line than there are tickets in the box, and he's just losing money. And one day... Powell saying, I wish there was a way I could have a paper ticket with a detachable stub. That way, if the game gets rained out, there's proof that I was here the first time. I can come back and use the stub. Partnered with a paper company in Arkansas and reportedly made the first ticket stubs. And what I liked about this story is that Powell, years later as an old man, when he was asked about it, was often asked, why didn't you patent that idea? You could have been a millionaire every concert, every sporting event. Because he said, and he said, back then we were just trying to grow baseball. I didn't care if other people used my idea. In fact, I wanted them to. Wow. So, again, that's another one of those where you just kind of take for granted that there's a ticket stub, especially because nowadays so much of it is electronic ticketing. You download it on your phone, and right. your phone gets scanned as you come inside. But, yeah, the actual tickets, it had to start somewhere. And who's ripping off the ticket? And it's actually pretty ingenious that you would just recycle the same tickets day after day. Like, why would you want to? Throw those away and then have to print more. It's going to cost you money. But now we understand why. So that is, that's really fascinating. Both, I mean, it just goes to show how, what is that? Invention is all about necessity. A tarp was invented for a baseball field, not in Los Angeles, but in New Orleans right. because it rains right. all the time. Good and point. ticket stubs were invented because you're losing money because of rain checks. The, primitive versions of rain checks. Wow. Yeah, and uh, there was even an article at the time that said the phrase, I'll take a rain check, even if you're referring to a dinner date with somebody, evolves from the baseball story. Yeah, for sure. That would yeah. totally make sense, unless there was an 
insane institution down the Lefia line that, <laughs> that involved rain checks in case. <laughs> I, get, I need a check for what, never mind. Um, the other thing that I'm wondering, too, is if there was ever a time, you know, again, you got baseball owners, general managers, they're trying to figure out a way to still play games when the weather is not ideal before there was actual domes. I'm wondering if there was ever, like, a, a time when an owner thought, well, what if we just got something that could cover, you know, some type of... Mm-hmm. Some type of tarp that's that, that's that's above the field, you know. Some type of uh, tent or something. Yeah, some type of tent that you know. I mean, occasionally you have like these tents for like picnic areas. Whether or not teams ever like try to figure out a way to to tent off a field in order to keep the rain. Yeah. Out. Good point. You know, and then and Powell was from Pennsylvania, and in the 1950s he lived to be very old. He lived into his 90s. Um, when he passed, people were so prideful that they said, look at these key inventions that this guy produced. And if you're putting Henry Chadwick into the Hall of Fame and Candy Cummings for inventing the curveball, um, among others, uh, Alexander Cartwright for his alleged inventing of 90 bases between 90 feet between bases, they said, we should get Abner Powell on the Hall of Fame ballot. And there was such a groundswell that it actually made its way to the then Veterans Committee, but... Um, it wasn't organized like it is now. There wasn't an official ballot of a strict 10 names, so he did not end up on the Hall of Fame ballot. Um, but reading about the early game, it, it makes me curious because in 2020 is the next early baseball committee ballot. Uh, which players, which figures are going to be on that list of 10 for Hall of Fame consideration? Is there a minor league baseball Hall of Fame? No. Uh, we should start one, and he should be in it. He, he should. I agree. Except for all yeah. of the interns and all of the grounds crew and all of the others who have rolled the tarps out <laughs> 50 times in a season. Who are cursing at him. <laughs> yes, who yeah. are cursing. Uh, we would have rather gone home and not had to work tonight. Instead, we had to put the tarp on the field four times today. <laughs> There's a very nice guy who used to run the Memphis Redbirds named Dave Chase, who I think runs an independent league team in New York now. And back in 05, he had this idea. He had big Big plans for a minor league baseball Hall of Fame where it would be a collection of artifacts, old photos, the things that um, excellent ballparks like yours in Albuquerque or the one where we sit in El Paso do with old memorabilia and photos. Chase had this idea for a minor league baseball Hall of Fame, and uh, for whatever reason it didn't evolve, but he was actually to the point that he was contacting people about, okay, let's grab a, a baseball from a Southern Association game in 1912 if we can find it. Um, I, of course, would love if that, if that existed, but I mean, to start a museum obviously requires uh, round-the-clock work. A lot of money. Where would yeah. it be located? Where would a minor league baseball Hall of Fame be located? I don't know. Um, would it be, you know, perhaps it could be an annex at Cooperstown um, while people are there? Or do you pick some historic, have it attached to some historic old ballpark like Asheville or... Um, That's in, what I was thinking. It's like, uh, like a Durham field, like or near like Durham, you know, yeah. Durham because it's so famous yeah. from the movie or Asheville Good or some place, right? Yeah. I would want it to be further away from the Major League Baseball Hall of Fame, just so that it's you know, so that people can it's easier to get to rather right. than having to go a long distance to see both. And I wouldn't want it in a Major League city because I, don't, I think it would maybe lose a little bit of its luster. That's why I think right. kind of like the Carolinas. There's no Major League team in North Carolina, South Carolina. There's a lot of a lot of old ballparks. Clubs. Yeah. There's a lot, you know. You got the Carolina League. You've got yeah. teams from the Southern League. Now the now the International League. I think maybe the Carolinas would be a good location for it. Yeah, great idea. Um, you know, Pawtucket is reportedly losing its team. Maybe the site of baseball's longest game, uh, Rhode Island. Um, 
I like your idea with the Carolinas, though, because I'm sure there's a lot of minor league aficionados that hit that area during the summer because of how many clubs you have in North Carolina. Yeah. All right, I got another one. Uh, this is a, a brief one. I saw this one on nationalpastime.com, and I did a ton of Google searches to try to find more information about it. And sadly, I have been uh, shut out in uh, finding additional information about it. But I did find, this was an entry. Now, National Pastime is fantastic. It doesn't cite the source of it. It just has, like, these different entries. So on April 18, 1942, due to the fear of a Japanese attack, General DeWitt, he was the commanding officer of the 4th Army Command, he asked the Pacific Coast League, back before it was the PCL that we know it now, to limit attendance at night games to no higher than the average number of fans from the previous year, which was approximately 3,000. So there was a fear that minor league ballparks or just any type of large gathering would be a target for the Japanese. And so in order to make sure that there was not a target, you could not draw more than what your average attendance was the year before. Later on in the season, all evening contests for ballparks that were within 15 miles of the Pacific Ocean were completely prohibited. Wow. And so the only place where you could play a night game was San Diego, obviously before this was a major league team in the National League. Uh, The San Diego Padres, as they were known, was the only club that was not within 15 miles of the Pacific Ocean where their ballpark, and so they did not have to shuffle their starting times. But everywhere else, they either had to play day games or you had to cap your attendance at 3,000. Now, if you are a historian of college football, you might think that this sounds somewhat familiar, the 1942 Rose Bowl football game was not played in Pasadena, California. Again, there was a fear that the large crowd of spectators would be too tempting of a target for Japanese warplanes, and so it's the one and only time that the Rose Bowl was not played in Pasadena. It was moved to North Carolina that year. Wow. Scary time. Um, Even just the entry, as I was going through this day in baseball history, I don't know, within the last week or two, and it was something about how we knew that it was the last game for Ted Williams before he went off to war, and he hit like a home run, and he had like, you know, two or three hits or whatever, dramatic home run, and then the next day he goes off to war. I've known for a long time about the history of baseball and wars, but it still just boggles my mind. You think about, oh, what a devastating injury, you know, this guy's going to be out for three weeks, or this guy... You know, he needs Tommy John surgery, so he's going to be out for 12 to 15 months. And, oh, this is, uh, you know, quite the development, you know, for this team's pitching staff. Ted Williams, the best hitter (laughs) of his generation, if not of all time. Imagine just the disappointment of we're losing Ted Williams. Not for a week, not for 12 to 15 months, but he's going off to war. We don't know if he's coming back from war. Mm. And if he is alive, if he's going to be able to play and how good he might be when he comes back from war. And that first gap when he missed multiple seasons, he was in his mid-20s. Yeah. I mean, that is the prime of his career. I know uh, I heard this story. There's so much lore around Williams where I grew up in Massachusetts, obviously. Um, But he was so skilled, I have a tendency to believe a lot of the stories. Williams, from what I understand, there was one one of his uh, military deployments for a year and a half, for 18 months, did not touch a bat. And he comes back to Fenway Park, checks in, says hello to the general manager of the team. This is, he's older at this point. He was in, his early, or in the early 1950s. And the GM says, go down, take batting practice. we got some young pitcher there working on some things. No, 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 no. Come on, just go out, go out. And word spreads throughout 
the area around Lansdowne Street, Teddy's back. He's taking batting practice. And the word is, after a couple of swings, Ted Williams then hit 13 consecutive pitches out of the park. (laughs) After not holding a bat for 18 months. There's another story that Williams was there one winter and was taking some swings before spring training, is what I've been told. And at that time, they were playing football at Fenway Park. Was he wearing they a towel, have, by the uh, way? My all-time favorite <laughs> photo of Ted Williams is him in a towel. In the taking, locker room? Yeah. yeah that, <laughs> <laughs> that video, how thin he looks. Right. He does not look like a muscular guy. Right. Yeah. Um, so, like a lot of baseball stadiums now, Fenway Park was being converted for different events. And the word is Williams says to the pitcher throwing in batting practice, you looked a little bit too close. And they measured, and the Fenway Park mound, the day that Ted said that, was 60 feet 4 inches away. <laughs> <laughs> but they say he had 2015 vision. Yeah. It, it might be true. Yeah. All right, we got time for one more each. You got one more? All right. Back in 2012, there was a baby in Seattle named Bodie Dockle. Bodie Dockle. B-O-D-E, like the skier, Bodie. Okay. And on April 21st, 2012, his dad, Paul, says, Hey, day game at Safeco Field. Let's go introduce my son to baseball. They sit in the stands. Beautiful day up in the Northwest. That day for the White Sox, Philip Humber pitches a perfect game. I remember watching the last two innings on TV. It's the game of the week for Fox. Right. So, uh... Dad is saying, wow, I saw history. My son Bodie was there. I'll tell him about this when he's older. He goes back to his regular life for a couple of months. Then, in August of 2012, hey, the Mariners have a day game. You know, that was fun when I brought Bodie out there a couple months ago. So, Paul and Bodie go back to another game. Felix Hernandez pitches a perfect game. (laughs) I love it. There have been 23 perfect games in Major League history, and a baby in Seattle named Bodie saw two of them before his first birthday. (laughs) When Bodie wins the Cy Young in 2035, (laughs) this is going to be epic. Wow, I like that. I mean, think about the hundreds of people that have seen thousands of games each that have never seen a perfect game. How many perfect games have you seen? Never. Neither have I. Yeah. On TV, I've never seen one in person. Me neither. I've seen There's a no-hitter in person. I saw Nolan Ryan's no-hitter against the A's, the Coliseum in 1990, I'm pretty sure it was. Really? I saw that in person, and I've seen a couple of combined no-hitters. Never on the air. I've never broadcast a no-hitter. Came close a couple of times last year into the ninth inning. I don't think... I think even in all my years as a newspaper reporter, I think every time there was a no-hitter thrown, I think I had the day off. I did cover as the uh, when I was doing the Dodgers pre and post, when the Dodgers got no hit, but they won one nothing over the Angels. They scored a run without a hit, and that oh, was the only right. run of the game. Arredondo uh, of the Angels? Yeah, yeah. I want to I say that Jared Weaver started the game for the Angels. Chad Billingsley started for the Dodgers. So I remember being at that one. But I know I've never been in a perfect game. And this guy goes to two games in one year, and they're both perfect games? Stay hot, bro. Go to Vegas. All right, I got one more story. This is a little bit more modern, although it's going to start with the 1973 draft is where our story begins. 
We could do an entire hour about the 1973 draft. For example, the first overall selection was David Clyde, famed schoolboy legend from a high school in Texas. He's drafted first. And you often hear the phrase poster boy to describe David Clyde because he was rushed to the major leagues for sagging attendance. His professional debut was in the majors. The original plan by the Texas Rangers was he would make one start in the majors, then he would get sent to the minors for more seasoning. But they saw how big the attendance was and decided they could make more money off him. So they kept him in the majors. He did not do well. He developed an arm problem. Never came close to being anything that they wanted. And again, he is the poster boy for mishandling young pitchers. That could be this story, but it will not be. John Stearns was the second selection in the 1973 draft. He was a catcher from the University of Colorado. He also played football for the Buffaloes. He was a safety. He was a punter. He was drafted in the NFL. He was not quite Kyler Murray. He was drafted in the 17th round in football. By the way, who knew that football had 17 rounds? I did not. It did back in 1973. John Stearns played 10 years in the major leagues, was a four-time All-Star. I think he would be an interesting topic, but he is not the subject of this segment. Dave Winfield was the fourth overall selection of the 1973 draft. Dave Winfield was drafted by four teams in three sports. He was drafted by an American Basketball Association team, a National Basketball Association team, so two basketball teams. Even though he never played college football, the hometown at Minnesota Vikings drafted him in the 17th round. Again, who knew there was a 17th round? And, of course, Winfield was drafted by the San Diego Padres with the fourth overall selection. He would be an interesting subject for this segment, but he is also not the subject of this feature. Instead, the subject is Robin Yount. Rockin' Robin, the Hall of Famer. Robin Yount was drafted third overall in that draft. He was sent as a 17-year-old to Newark, New Jersey, the New York Penn League. He played 64 games. That offseason, Brewers general manager Del Crandall, according to Brewers lore, he said to the front office, I don't know if it was one person or people in the ticket office, but he said in general to the front office, is there any reason why an 18-year-old kid cannot play shortstop in the big leagues? Response was, why not? So Robin Yount was in the lineup on opening day, 1974. He was the starting shortstop for the Milwaukee Brewers at age 18. He continued to be the Brewers' regular shortstop until 1985, in which he was switched to the outfield. He played 20 years. He won two MVPs, a silver slugger. He won an MVP at shortstop and in center field. Three-time All-Star, 3,142 hits. And I looked at this today, Hags. He had 13 different seasons in which he had 600 or more at-bats which I think really shows his durability, the fact that he was there to play on a regular basis. However, he almost retired in 1978. It was known at the time as the Great Golf Strike of 1978. At least, this is what his Wikipedia page says. Robin Yount courted controversy in the winter of 1978. He threatened to retire from the game and take up professional golf rather than be underpaid or moved to the outfield by the Brewers. Early in the season, Paul Molitor was called up from the Brewers' Class A affiliate to the Major League team because of Yount's absence. Yount's mans were eventually met when he returned to the team. Molitor was moved from shortstop to second base to make room for Yount. That story is not completely true. It was not necessarily about him wanting to pick up golf. For the rest of the story, we are going to borrow liberally from Robert Creamer's 1982 article in Sports Illustrated. Uh, late in the 1982 season when Yount was on the verge of winning the MVP, uh, the true story came out about what happened 
four years earlier in 1978. Now, before we get into 1978, I decided I want to look back and like, okay, he was 18, so how did he do? He hit 250 at age 18. And this is back when batting averages would matter, right? So his first four years, he hit, his highest average was 288. He hit 250, 252, 267. Was not hitting for much power. Averaged basically four home runs a season. There was one year that he made 44 errors. 1975, his second year, he made 44 errors. And it made me think that nowadays, not only would you not take a kid who was just drafted and put him in the major leagues at age 18, but if he committed 44 errors, is there any way that he would still be the shortstop by the end of the season? No. He would totally get sent down, right? And at some point during those four years, you would think there has to be somebody more experienced and ready to play shortstop. He needs more time in the minor leagues. But apparently the Brewers just didn't have anybody better, or they just kept believing in him that Robin Yount was going to improve. We now know that he did. Okay, so again, we move forward to 1978. So I'm going to uh, quote here from Robert Creamer's Sports Illustrated article. That spring training, Yount was restless and unhappy. He was hitting poorly. His ankles hurt. He hadn't yet signed his new contract. He began talking of not signing at all, of giving up baseball. There was even reports that he wanted to quit to become a professional golfer. Yount denies that he ever said this, at least not seriously. Rumor had it that some wealthy men in Palm Springs were going to underwrite him on the pro tour. And when the story spread, conversation among the Brewers centered around the question, do you think Robin's going to sign? This was a big deal. Well, the club president for the Brewers, somebody named Bud Selig? I think that's how you pronounce it. <laughs> Bud Selig flew out to spring training in Arizona. So did Harry Dalton, the general manager. George Bamberger was in his first year as a manager. And uh, and they all just thought, okay, we're going to need Paul Molitor to be a shortstop. So at first they thought, okay, send Molitor to the minor league camp. You know, Yount is eventually going to sign. But then Robin Yount left camp. And they brought Molitor back to the, to the major league camp and said, you're going to be starting the season at shortstop. So the season begins, and still no Robin Yount. He's basically hasn't decided if he's going to keep playing baseball. Well, Yount flew to Milwaukee just before the season began, hung around for a few days, had dinner with Bud Selig, abruptly flew back to Arizona where he had been staying with his brother. The story later came out that the reason was because Yount had a personal matter. He had been going with a girl. That was the phrase back then. He had been going with a girl named Michelle Edelstein. They had met in high school. She had lived with him in Milwaukee during the 1977 season. She had told Robin, I don't want to just be your girlfriend. She wanted to be married. She wanted to have kids. She wanted to stay in California. And Robin Yount was torn between continuing to play baseball or be with his high school sweetheart. He was in love with her. Well, eventually they worked out their future. He decided to return to the Brewers. They were married in the offseason. He continued on with his baseball career and eventually went into the Baseball Hall of Fame. And Robin Yount says the following, or he said it back in 1982. He said, quote, I was injured. I couldn't play. I had tendonitis in my ankles. I missed the last month of my first season with it. And playing ball wasn't much fun. We weren't winning either. We lost nearly 100 games my first four seasons, and I like to win. I'm not very introspective, but I guess I was at an age 20, 21, 22, when people wonder what they're going to do with their lives. I suppose I was beginning to wonder if playing baseball was what I wanted to do. I think now it might have been part of me growing up. I was very fortunate. Bud Selig was very patient with me. It's as though he said, give the young man all the time he needs to straighten this out. Wow. It makes me wonder if someone has been playing for four years and they just decide, yeah, I don't know if I want to keep playing. 
like what the reaction would be on Twitter, what the reaction would be from teammates, what the reaction would be from the front office. Apparently his teammates were not mad at all. They loved him. And Sal Bando at the time was the third baseman, later worked in the Milwaukee front office. And Sal Bando was quoted as saying, begrudge him, no way. There's nothing worse than doing something that you're not sure you want to do. And Yount later said, I'm having so much more fun married than when I was single. People think being single is great, but I need to be married and have kids. It's interesting how, uh, you know, the, the lesson in that I take from was how well C-League and Dalton were patient with him and, and listened to his feelings and what he was going through. You know, if they were a militaristic, really hard-nosed person, they said, oh, just shut up and play, maybe he would have hung him up. Yeah. And maybe he wouldn't be in the Hall of Fame right now. So I credit the Brewers for realizing, okay, this guy's young. Let's let him mature. Let's talk him through this and fly out there and meet him. It also makes me think that that's something in the early 80s. I don't know. I feel like that's something that most teams would have been. No, you have to play. Get out there. If you're not going to play, then we'll find somebody else. Then you hit the Mm -hmm. pavement that they would have been really hard line. This actually sounds like something that might occur nowadays a little bit more, even though the player would get crushed on social media, would get crushed because of the amount of attention. I also wonder how much it helped that Milwaukee, Wisconsin, not exactly a major, you know, not a major market, uh, certainly a major league city. Back then, spring training was not covered the way that it is now. It was in Sun City, Arizona, is where the Brewers trained. It's not like now where there's... 14 to 16 teams that are all within about an hour radius in Arizona where you have national writers who are bouncing around, popping in, doing different stories. There probably wasn't a whole lot of coverage of what was going on because of just the way that baseball was covered back then. So it probably made it a little bit easier on Yount and the Brewers front office to take this approach of, all right, we're going to let the kid work through this. I think back to Edgar Martinez went into the Hall of Fame or was elected in January and one of the things that hurt Martinez is that he didn't have the career totals because he really wasn't an established major leaguer until his late 20s. You know, it makes me wonder. Let's say they had a different approach on Yout, and they said, no, nah, an 18-year-old's not ready, and he went to low A and then high A and then double A, and then he is in his early, early 20s, and maybe he's having some defensive problems and becomes an up-and-down guy and maybe doesn't stick until his mid-20s. I know Yount was an all-star, was a two-time MVP, so he probably would have been in the Hall of Fame anyway, but... Throughout all of that, the career totals wouldn't have been there. It's kind of interesting to think of what his career would have been like if you subtracted four seasons from it. I don't know if he would have been a Hall of Famer. Because, okay, so his career hit total, 3,142. What got him in was that he got over 3,000 hits. His home runs, as I look it up, he hit 251. Yeah, at the time of his voting, that's what people were voting on was the career totals. Yeah. He played in even 20 years, all in one organization. Career average was 285. Yeah, he won two MVPs, but, I mean, three-time All-Star is good, but it's not Yeah, it's not like he was a 10-time All-Star. You know, it's not like he was someone who was in the playoffs every year. Now, he led them. Now, the year that he was the MVP, 1982, they went to the World Series. They lose to the Cardinals. Other than that, that was the only year that he went to the postseason. Correction, 1981, the year before forgot about the strike-shortened season. He was in the playoffs that year with the Brewers as well. But that was it. So it's not like he had this October resume. So you take his first four seasons, his hits were 86, 149, 161, 171. So that's about 400 hits. You take those four seasons and you put them in the minor leagues the way that you would now, now he's at 2,600 hits. 
Maybe 2,700 hits. And now maybe he doesn't, now maybe it still takes him a couple more years before he gets established, before he becomes the guy who gets 647 at-bats in a season and racks up 210 hits. Maybe he's not a Hall of Famer if they didn't rush him to the major leagues. Yeah, it's interesting to think of. And whereas David Clyde, I'm sorry to cut you off, the story early about the poster boy, David Clyde, he got rushed to the major leagues. That did not work. Robin Yount basically got rushed to the major leagues. His first year he hit 250. Had three home runs, 26 RBIs, 14 doubles, five triples. Hit 250. His second year, he committed 44 errors. I mean, he's talking about getting rushed to the major leagues, but the Brewers didn't feel like they had anybody better at shortstop. And because he got rushed to the major leagues, and they stuck with him, and they believed in him, and he ends up in the Hall of Fame as a result of it. Hmm. It's interesting when you're describing that, the thought of Paul Molitor as a shortstop. Yeah. That was the other part that blew me away, too. It's funny when you see a name with a completely different position than you picture. Um, Wade Boggs in the minor leagues played some left field. Did he really? Something I never would have pictured. So Robin Yount was, you think about scouting, and you mentioned how teams didn't have a whole lot of scouts, you know. Uh, The Brewers scouts must have been pretty darn good because they found Robin Yount at a Taft Taft High School in Woodland Hills, California. He was first round in 1973. And Paul Molitor was a first-round selection. And Molitor had gone to college, so when they were moving him up uh, from single A, at least he had three years at the University of Minnesota. But he was uh, the first-rounder in 1977. Again, third overall selection. So that might be... I always think of the Mariners, how they drafted Ken Griffey Jr. and Alex Rodriguez with the overall select, number one yeah. selections. And I think it was 87 and 90, or maybe 91. Um, yeah, it had to be 91. And then Molitor and Yount, third overall selections, four years apart... Both went into the Hall of Fame wow. about four years apart as well. And Molitor was very briefly the shortstop because Robin Yount was still trying to figure out if he was going to uh, mm. just stay back in California, be with the woman that he loved, or whether or not they were going to work it out and, and, uh, and get married and still keep playing baseball. What a great story. Try to massage a player a little bit when he's going through something. Right. Might have uh, created a Hall of Famer for the Brewers in doing that. Yeah, there you go. And you think about all the times that Molitor and Yount hit, you know, one and two in the lineup or hit two and three in the lineup. Molitor ended up playing second, played a lot of third later in his career. Late in his career, was known as a DH when he bounced around to other organizations. But the amount of time that those two guys spent together, right, on buses, on planes, turning double plays, his catch partners, batting practice, like, you know, those two guys around each other, they were kind of linked forever, right, those two. so funny how our brains work. Like, Robin Yount, obviously... Is one of the first few names I think of when I think about the Milwaukee Brewers. But I grew up more in the 1990s, and when somebody says Paul Molitor, I think about being on the Blue Jays World Series team. Probably just, at that time I was 11. You know, when you're 11, that's like peak baseball fandom. And, yeah. um, you know, Joe Carter hits a home run to win the World Series, and obviously I knew Molitor's great success with the Brewers, but in my head, he's, he's also a Blue Jay and a twin. Yeah. All right. You got anything else? Any other postscripts that you want to add before we wrap it up? No. Thanks for having me. This was fun, and I learned things from you. I learned things from you, especially about tarps. I learned a lot from you about tarps. So on that note, hopefully there's going to be no rain today or tomorrow or Friday, and we'll be able to play these four games. And I wish you nothing but the best of, 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 of baseball this year that is played under quality weather conditions. 
Thank you. I wish you nothing but the best in avoiding cowboys with gambling debts on games. I still can't believe that he hit the baseball. Like, what if he missed the baseball and hit a fan or hit the player? He had good aim. There was a risk. There was a risk, but it worked. Yay. They they called it a home run, and so that means the gambler won the money, right? Right. Maybe he trained, like, uh, shooting birds that are moving in the air. Sure he did. Yeah, absolutely. Or maybe home plate was tossed in the air skeet practice. (laughs) The glass home plate. We're trying to see as many... uh, wraparound references we can have. All right, Hags. Well done. Thanks for your time. Thank you. This was Life Around the Seams.